0: You're listening to the best of Kevin Inquiry on 93.5 and 107.5.
1: The Fan.
2: So our next guest, Stephen Holder from ESPN.com, had a pretty cool NFL Combine experience, and that was behind-the-scenes access throughout the week with Florida's Anthony Richardson, who obviously put on a show at the NFL Combine. And Stephen joins us now here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Stephen, I... I want to know everything about your experience with Anthony Richardson, but as someone that is just curious about, you know, how that even comes about, just kind of walk us through how, and what type of access you were granted with, uh, the home run of the combine.
3: Yeah, I think these things always boil down to relationships. And so obviously I don't know Anthony Richardson or did not know him, uh, but I, I did have a pre-existing relationship with his, his agents, uh, both of them. And, you know, just from previous dealings with previous players and stories I've worked on. And so, I you know, I figured, hey, what, why not, let's see if we can uh, maybe figure something out that might be unique. You know, we're always trying to find different ways to cover things that are kind of old and stale, you know, like the Combine. And, and this is one way to do it. So basically, I, I said, look, I just want to be a fly on the wall. I, don't, I won't get in the way. Let me just kind of hang around and, and just kind of see what I can see. And I, I figured something might come out of it, uh, not necessarily knowing at the time that he would uh, do some historic things through the week. So um, that's how it came about, and I'm glad it worked out.
0: What was, Stephen, for you, and we'll get to Anthony Richardson in a moment. But in terms of following around a prospect at the Combine, what was a procedure or a process that was the most eye-opening or surprising to you in terms of what they undergo throughout the course of their time here?
3: Well, I think the, the biggest thing, and I did kind of know this, but it, it's a very vivid reminder, is just how much they are pulled in so many different directions. There's so much going on. All right, he, he gets on a flight, I think, and leaves Florida at 5 a.m. Or, excuse me, he gets up, I should say, at 5 a.m. last Tuesday, right? He flies into Indianapolis, and he's going until 1130 that night with team interviews and other matters that have to be dealt with. And he's up the next morning early, same routine, uh, interviews, medical exams, and then all this happens. And then he's got to get a workout in at the end of the day, because by the way, you have to stay conditioned and stay sharp physically. And so that's, that's another late night. We, we're walking back to the hotel, the players hotel on Wednesday evening. And it's, it's around 11 o'clock and this kid is dragging. Okay. He's just dragging. And he's like, I'm so tired. He's like, I'm going to sleep so well tonight. and, you can kind of really just feel it's just like any of us who have had a long day. It, it felt like that, except this is the biggest week of his life, right? You know, this opportunity that he has. So I think it just really drives home just how much they tax them mentally and physically. I actually think it's very intentional so that they can see whether they can handle it.
2: And Stephen Holder with us. com, is latest behind the scenes with Anthony Richardson at the combine. Again, I want to focus here for just a second. Um, When you look at the Colts, Stephen, in regards to Richardson, and you look at the AFC right now, the AFC is loaded. Loaded with great quarterbacks and young quarterbacks. Do you think at all the Colts view this as, if we want to compete in this conference and compete at the top of this conference, we need to swing for the fences. We need to try and get the freakiest of athletes the highest potential because if you want to survive in a conference with Josh Allen Patrick Mahomes Joe Burrow etc and they've already played deep into January into February we've got to take a huge swing could you see Chris Ballard having that sort of mindset and then obviously Richardson would be the guy that I think would speak to that more than any of the other quarterbacks
3: well look I mean I think their their thinking is still fluid Probably but but here's the thing. What you are saying is undoubtedly true and, and they have to at least acknowledge the the reality of everything you just said. Look, here's I, I think are the two best examples, and I've shared this with JMV the other day. I'll repeat it here. You have in two thousand seventeen, the Kansas City Chiefs, they trade up significantly, right, from the bottom of the first round to number ten. Go get Patrick Mahomes. I know at the time it was kind of, eh, whatever. But I think we don't give them enough credit for not only identifying Patrick Mahomes as the next thing, but also being aggressive and in going in, getting him. That's the part that I think we need to talk about. So they did that, and they've obviously been rewarded handsomely. Now, go to a couple of years ago. The Philadelphia Eagles, they draft Jalen Hurts, but it's not that. That's not the biggest decision they made it was the decision to say we are 50 million dollars in on carson Wentz, and we don't care we are going to say you're gone and jalen hurts after like five starts is going to be our starter i mean that was risky right that was risky Uh, but they saw something and they had conviction and damn it they were right (laughs) okay They, they were unquestionably right about that so I think those are two examples that the Colts and frankly, a lot of teams should look at and say, swing hard swing for the fence uh, because there's lots of middling quarterbacks out there. I mean, look, I think Derek Carr is a good quarterback. Uh, Do we think the New Orleans saints are going to be in the Super Bowl next year? I certainly don't. If I'm I'm wrong, I'll eat my words, but my point is uh, you, if you need someone special, they have to be special. I think at this point and the, the just completed Super Bowl is a perfect example of that.
2: You think Anthony Richardson's camp believes he'll last past pick number five? Uh,
3: they think that everything's on the table, including uh, the top five, and it's impossible to know, right? But I will tell you this: I I learned enough last week, spending time around him and and learning, you know, what the level of interest is and from where. I learned enough to be. Thoroughly convinced. He's in the top 10 for sure, in my opinion. You never know for sure. Let me rephrase that. I think he's going to be in the top 10. I think he could be in the top five. That would take, obviously, some real conviction by someone. But I don't think it's off the table. I think the grit, the best example is Trey Lance, a couple years ago, going to San Francisco. It, it's something that Anthony Richardson said. He says, I only need one team to be to really be sold. And Trey Lance is the greatest example of that. I mean, we spent months talking about, I don't know, this guy's a, you know, an FCS player, they didn't have a full season because of COVID, we don't know anything and he goes number 3 overall. We still don't really know anything, but that ain't the point. The point is if we're talking about where he's going to be drafted, I think Trey Lance is a great example of when a guy has tantalizing skills that teams really really get tempted i think that's a very similar example to what we're seeing with anthony richardson
0: Stephen Stephen holder by the way is our guest espn.com is where you can read his work he's on the Payless liquors hotline let me read you the name of 10 quarterbacks and i want you to tell me that there's a reason that these 10 quarterbacks jump out to me okay mark sanchez scott zolick chris sims nick Foles, heath shuler ryan mallett Ryan Fitzpatrick, Cody Kessler, Dak Prescott, Jim Drunkenmiller. Now, do you know what those guys all have in common, Stephen? Um, hmm. Aside from I'm, relative underperformance as professionals? Was, was, is it that they were pocket passers those, those are the 10 guys that had the largest hand size. Uh, and showed as the best measurables in Combine history at the quarterback position. Not all of them, but I think you could make the argument. mm -hmm. Scott Zolick certainly comes to mind. Heath Shuler absolutely comes to mind. Ryan Mallett comes to mind. Probably Cody Kessler as well. These are guys that the the tape on them in college wasn't overwhelming, but from a physical standpoint, they were can't-miss guys that you had to take a shot on because all the measurements were fabulous. And then you know what? The tape wasn't very good at the NFL level. Is Anthony right. Richardson a risk at being the same type thing?
3: He's a risk for sure. You know, the level of risk, I think, depends on the eye of the beholder. But yes, he, there is a risk. There's no question. Uh, you, As I said earlier, I mean, he's got 13 starts. So you don't have the same level of, of certainty. Not that there is ever any certainty, right? but you just don't have the same level of information, I guess that you do after a guy has started two or three years. That's a fact, right? I mean, we have more tape of Bryce young. We have more tape of CJ Stroud and they've been doing it longer. There's a bigger body of work. All of that is true. But I think the difference between Anthony Richardson and, and some of the quarterback busts who were physically gifted in the past, but who didn't enjoy NFL success. I think the difference here is really the fact that he hasn't played a lot, actually, because you have that upside, that untapped upside, and I think he got better over the course of 2022. He got better over the course of the season. I remember sitting down and watching Florida versus Kentucky Early in the season, I don't get around to watching much college football because I'm traveling to a Colts game or something on a Saturday, but I knew there was some hype and and sat down and watched that game and was thoroughly disappointed. (laughs) But that was also very early in the season. And I think by the end of the season, you started to see a guy who was much more comfortable. That gives me some some comfort if I'm an NFL team because if he can continue on that trajectory of improvement at the NFL level with the time invested, with the, the improvement in coaching, with the higher level of athlete around him, that is going to give me some comfort that he can continue on that trajectory. But again, you don't know anything on these things. Right? It's all a projection and jobs are on the line. I get it.
0: In any way, shape, or form, Stephen Holder, was it possible for you to even get like an idea of which of those four quarterbacks the Colts seemed to raise their eyebrow towards the most?
3: I don't think a clear picture has has been ascertained just yet on that, uh, and, and it may not be. I will tell you the Colts are are, are being very intentionally vague, <laughs> and this is very deliberate. I know this uh, about their intentions at quarterback and about their evaluations. Of the quarterback, uh, they're they're doing a good job of not uh, indicating very much. Uh, I will tell you this: I know I was with Anthony Richardson last week, so I can speak to him. I, I do know they have quite a bit of interest; they are very intrigued by him. Uh, does that mean he'll be the guy? No, because again, I can't speak to how they view the other quarterbacks, uh, but. I do know they like him and I do know they're very intrigued and, and have spent a great deal of time evaluating him uh, both from afar and in person.
2: And Stephen Holder from ESPN.com. He is with us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. The franchise tag deadline came and passed. Colts still have not used it since Pat McAfee in 2013. Monday is when the legal tampering begins. I say that in quotes because we know full well when noon rolls around on Monday, we'll start to get some deals announced before things officially start a week from today. That is Wednesday for the new league year. Stephen, are you... Standing on a table for any Colts free agent not named Chase McLaughlin.
3: <laughs> um yeah, well definitely I don't want to go through a a kicking fiasco again. So I'm with you there. Um Standing on a Table? No, I don't know about that. I, I would say I think their their most appealing free agent might be Bobby O'Karake. And and I and I don't mean to dismiss Yannick Ingakli. I think he is He is a very good player. But in terms of where Bobby ranks at his position, I I think he could, he he may be higher. He he may be the guy who, at his position group, gets, uh, you know, maybe a a really sizable contract. And frankly, that's a position where the Colts have a great track record of of drafting guys, developing them, and then replacing them. And I think they're going to do the same thing here. Uh, particularly if they can get or if they feel good about uh, getting Shaquille Leonard back on the field this year, you're, you'd have him and Zaire Franklin, and I think that's a pretty good combination for your, your top two linebackers, which is really what matters, the top two. So is uh, a tough one. I like him a lot, and I think he was very valuable to the Colts last year. Uh, the, the question really just becomes, do they want to double down and pay him big money or would they rather continue sort of with the pass rush uh, by committee approach, if you will, and, and hope that that a couple of their young guys start to emerge a little more and continue, I guess, their emergence. we're starting to see it already, but does that continue? Um, Or do you want to sort of put more eggs in that, that one basket uh, with, in I don't know. I, I guess it just really depends on the number. I would say the, the Colts, their cap space is not, I forget the number off the top of my head, but it's depending on what they do with with Matt Ryan, it's it's going to be okay and they'll be fine, but it's not one of those years where they've got $60 million. Yeah, in $12 cap million
2: right now. Obviously, like right. you said, with, with Ryan, you can open up a whole lot more.
3: Right. But it, it's not going to be one of those years where, like, not that they have ever really taken advantage of it, but it's not going to be one of those years where the Colts can just do whatever they want because uh, they have limitless cap space. There, there are going to be some limitations this year. Steven, I want you to
0: <clears throat> close your eyes for a second and, and envision with me, right? Like we're gonna, we're gonna take a, uh, an imaginary trip here, right? If you fall back asleep, that's right. I will not right. judge it well, all. Where yeah. yeah. You close your well. You're going to answer that. You close your eyes right now. It's the Colts' bye week, so it's probably somewhere late October, early November, somewhere in there. And ESPN says to you, Stephen, here's what we're going to do. The Colts have been using a rookie quarterback this year, and he's had some success and some struggles. But we're going to send you uh, back to his college to interview his college staff about what they think about how his rookie year is going, talk to some of the fans about how much they're following the Colts. You find
3: yourself in what town? So – I figured that's where this was going. This is a total guess, okay? Total guess. But Are you driving or flying? <laughs> so I think I'm driving three hours east to Columbus, Ohio.
0: Now, the other question is this. Is that because the Colts are able to get C.J. Stroud at number four, or is Chris Ballard going to have to mm. start wheeling and dealing like Griggs is wheeling and dealing. Is he going to have to do the same to move up to get CJ
3: Stroud? Yeah, that is that is an interesting question. Uh, I I I lean towards saying, let's put it this way: if if you want to be sure that you get CJ Stroud, I think you have to move up. He might fall, he might, but are you willing to stake? Your, your future on that or your reputation, I mean, or Bryce Young for that matter, right? I mean, I think either of those top two quarterbacks, because they are the top two. As we sit here today, right now, the reality on draft day may be different. But as we sit here today, we think they're the top two. I don't see how you can sleep at night and say you're going to get either one of those guys at number four. If you're, if you're counting on that, then that's a bad bet. That's a terrible bet, in my opinion. Is
0: Will Levis still in the the thought problem? Maybe he wasn't. I mean, I've heard other, you know, Will Levis is fascinating to me because, Stephen, I've heard Will Levis, some people say, is a top four quarterback. Others say he's not a first rounder. Where do you think post-combine things sit with Will Levis' stock?
3: It doesn't seem like anything's really changed with him. I, I think it's kind of you are wherever you are with him. And I think he can be a successful NFL quarterback. I don't. I, I do agree. We haven't talked enough about him uh, because number one, he's probably going to go higher than people think. Uh, he's a quarterback. He's a, he's got a viable skill set in 2023, and half the league could use an upgrade, right? So <laughs> he's going to do just fine, in my opinion. So we're probably not talking enough about him now, as it relates to the Colts. Ah, really hard to say. Really hard to say. I, I just don't. I don't know that the assessment with him, or at least it feels this way, right? No one's actually said these words out loud, but but it feels like with Levis, like there's maybe not as much expectation that he has elite potential as some of these other guys. I may be wrong about that, right? That's just my sense. That is just my observation, my sense. We'll see if I'm proven right. But it does feel that way.
2: Steven, last one from me. The big news in the NFL yesterday was Lamar Jackson, the non-exclusive franchise tag, $32 million for next year. If a team wants to get Lamar, they would have to give him a new contract. I think a lot of people believe that would be potentially a fully guaranteed contract and then also give the Ravens two first-round picks. I found it very interesting yesterday that seemingly minutes after you had this announcement that the that the Ravens franchise tag, Lamar Jackson, like six reportedly quarterback needy teams all had their respective whatever beat people or national reporters come out and be like, yeah, we have no interest in Lamar Jackson. Is this owners colluding, coming together and saying we strongly – disagreed with the Deshaun Watson guaranteed contract that Cleveland gave him last year, and we will not allow that to happen with Lamar Jackson?
3: Well, first of all, we don't have to speculate. We know they didn't like the Deshaun Watson contract. like That was a bridge too far for most NFL owners. And it's one of the reasons you've seen uh, the Baltimore ownership come out and say, look, that is not something that we uh, want to do. I have... I mean, I can't prove this. Nobody can, but I mean, are are we to sit here and believe that the NFL ownership hasn't talked about this among themselves? You're damn right. They have. (laughs) Okay. Because as much as they want to beat each other, the one thing that they love is, is money. Right. And, And they are businessmen and women. So they understand this. They understand what's at stake here. If you start, giving out a bunch of guaranteed contracts could that eat into your bottom line of course it could so you know this is front and center there was actually an ownership meeting this week (laughs) in, I believe Palm Beach I'm not saying it was on the agenda I'm just saying so anyway here's my point I I think that there it it was to me it, it was so blatant like they're so bad at this okay as you said all right It's one thing to say you don't want to give Lamar Jackson a guaranteed contract. I'm fine with that. Like, I don't think there's any – I don't have any issue with that. That is fine. A perfectly reasonable position. However, to say you're not even going to engage with him is kind of ridiculous. And it shows to me, at least, that this was predetermined. It it certainly suggests that it was predetermined. I mean, who knows? If you engage with him, maybe if you pay – Maybe you can pay a little more than other teams might be willing to pay and not guarantee the whole thing, and that may then appeal to him, right? I mean, who knows? But they're not even engaging with Lamar Jackson, so they're not even bothering to have the conversation. I mean, that should say something right there. Steven,
0: last one from me. I was thinking about this on the drive-in. I've always liked Derek Carr's skill set. I think he seems like a decent guy. I might have totally misread him. I don't know. We'll probably never know that. But by him, by by Derek Carr going to New Orleans, there's nothing overly splashy or sexy about Derek Carr. There's nothing really overly splashy or sexy about the New Orleans Saints. But by signing him, do they all of a sudden become? in the mix in the NFC strictly based on the fact that that division is abysmal with no known quarterback and the NFC is the polar opposite of the AFC in terms of quarterback
3: depth? I do think it was a good move for him to go to the NFC. I would Correct. say that. Yeah. I mean, listen, he was in the AFC West, man. <laughs> okay? Patrick Mahomes, Dustin Herbert. You know, somebody asked this. I think this is a great question.
0: Is Derek Carr the best Worst quarterback in his division in the history of the NFL?
3: <laughs> That's a fair question. Look, I, I also like Derek Carr. I also think he's a decent human being. I, I, I've always struggled to evaluate him as a quarterback. I, I, I really, really want to like him and do and have liked him at times. But then I also look at, well, the results just aren't there. And, and what does that say? Despite that team at times having a fair amount of talent the Raiders I'm talking about right so I don't know how to feel about him sometimes I really don't but anyway be that as it may I do think it's very interesting he he, that maybe solidifies your point that he's maybe one of those worst best quarterbacks (laughs) it's very interesting but he is definitely the best quarterback in that division pending other moves obviously I think Carolina is is a team that's gonna make a move. That, that's one other thing. I know this is not what you asked me, but I would say one one takeaway from the combine that I had is that Carolina, they are getting them a quarterback, buddy. That is happening.
2: Yeah, I think they could be a big trade up here coming up in late April. Um Steven I Lied, last one, Paris Campbell back with the
3: Colts. Uh, I think so. I, I do. I, I think it makes too much sense. Pretty weak uh, I, wide
2: receiver free agent market
3: yeah I mean I, I think if the if the money's cheap and I think it will be but but we'll see I mean I would say the, the one thing I would say is that the wide receiver is a position that tends to get overpaid kind of like I mean at least in perception wise um, it's it's just a big dollar position at times and you know guys can, can get more money than you think so we'll see we'll see but but I would say this I do think, as the Colts kind of evaluate what they have, I do think that wide receiver is a position where where maybe they are are thinking about whether they have enough. So we'll see what that ends up meaning in the end, but I, maybe that's a product of, of Shane Steichen and his thinking. We'll see.
2: Steven, great work on the Anthony Richardson front. Again, that is his latest up on ESPN.com, behind the scenes with Richardson at the Combine. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Steven
3: all right guys
0: take care nine o'clock hour in indianapolis for that matter it's the nine o'clock hour everywhere in the eastern time zone jake query along with kevin bowen mark dykton here as well great question from chris um since i always talk about how i don't really feel my stride until the last hour of the show since we spring forward uh next week does that mean i'll really start getting going around 10 is a great question that actually is pretty much what happens to me every day right around 10 Mm -hmm. i'm like well i'm starting to feel it now i'm awake Uh, joining us now and i'm sure thrilled to be doing so jump ahead wouldn't that be eight right what's that bring forward wouldn't that be eight you're feeling it is that what it is i guess you're right actually skip an hour is that correct now, now I'm all confused. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed at 8 a.m. will be a nice change of pace for Jake. <laughs> that's right. Well, I've got... Mark, you're the one whose hair looks fabulous. Well, that's because I take my ring off and do my hair, which apparently you don't. Uh, Mike DiCorsi joins us now, and as I would mentioned, I'm sure thrilled to be doing so on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Uh, Mike, just about this time yesterday, the Sporting News released their All-American list, and Zach Eady, unanimous. Trace Jackson Davis had to be right behind him. I, I think that it's easy for people, Mike... Understandably so, because of the rivalry to debate back and forth which of the two was more deserving. But I look at it simply as you know what, two of the best players in college basketball are right here within an hour of here, and that's pretty darn cool.
4: That is pretty cool, absolutely. Uh, it's and and very much were uh, deserving. I think that what I, I think there's a couple of things if you want to debate not our list because it's they're all equals. I mean they when at the end of the day, nobody other than the, for the curiosity of the article, when they, when they're listed on Wikipedia in five years and not going to be designated as one got more votes. Now, uh, I think that, uh, that what you'll find out in re- in regards to the big 10 player of the year award, the national player of the year award, which we just released, uh, within, Three minutes ago, Uh, Zach Eady is the Sporting News National College Basketball Player of the Year. Uh, And and that was the difference between he and Trace is simply that he's been great all year and Trace was not. And that's that's reality. Uh, I don't think anybody was sitting there on January 1st talking about how wonderful Trace had been. And I, I, I and I understand that it was largely, if not almost, if not exclusively because of his back. But once he got rid of that problem, he was so brilliant in January and February and early March that he came from off the grid, so to speak, to be a first-team All-American. Do you realize how good you have to be in those two months to go from, oh, he's pretty good, to, oh, he's one of the five best players out of 4,500 players or so? That's how unbelievable January, February, and early March were for Trey. So I think that's the difference between the two. Why one is Big Ten Player of the Year, Sporting News National Player of the Year, and a unanimous All-American, and one is one of the five best players in college basketball, which is, as I said, think about the numbers. There are around four four thousand 4,500, somewhere in there, and you're one of the five best out of that? That's that's crazy.
2: Mike is with us again from Big Ten Network Sporting News. Let's stick with Purdue here for just a second, Mike. The concerns are very valid. I mean, they've had some turnover issues here over the past month or so, um, something that showed up, honestly, last season. And frankly, they just aren't hitting enough open shots. But at the same time, I would think a glass-half-full look at Purdue in the tournament would be... It's really, really hard to simulate Zach Eady for teams that aren't used to playing against him or aren't used to scouting him. You know, Replicating that in practice, particularly if you have a quick turnaround in the second of the two games on an NCAA tournament weekend, I think would be pretty challenging for a team. How much do you think that will aid Purdue as they try to make a run?
4: Well, I, th- I think that it can help, but w- when you look at that, you look at him on film and you say, how do we deal with that? Well, what's worked? Okay, so throw everybody you got at them. Everybody. It, from every angle, multiple, pl- multiple players at a time, don't double, triple, and, and make the other guys make you pay. And that's worked. That's the problem. It, it works for Maryland, it works for IU. Make the other guys make you pay. And when is someone going to step forward and make them pay? Uh, it, it, you know, make the uh, the opposition who decides that that controlling Zach is the entire deal, pay for that by hitting threes, by moving the ball quickly and getting open shots, uh, driving it to twelve feet, pulling up. All of that stuff is available when teams go oh, uh, quote overboard on defending Zach, but it, none of it, for the most part, has been punished by. The, the, the rest of the boilers and until it is uh, that they the, the boilers are going to be in peril against any quality team they play. And I, I think it's, they're capable of doing it, but they haven't done it. And it, I, I worry less about the turnovers against pressure. I think they, I think they can manage that, but they need to put teams in a position where they want to pressure and have to pressure by making those open shots that develop by the
0: excess attention to uh zach it really is remarkable mike back to kind of your original point about zach edie and the fact that his consistency over the course of the season never wavered despite the fact that teams started kind of trying to do different ways to guard him you know sometimes you saw double you know and the backcourt play, while I think the world of Braden Smith and Fletcher Lawyer and what they were able to do as young players this year, it was not as consistent, to your point. And so, would you agree that Zach Eady probably did see multiple looks or variations of the way that he was guarded over the course of the year, yet none of it worked against him, essentially?
4: Oh, I, absolutely. I, you go back to the second, I think it was the second Indiana game, uh, that, that they, the one they lost at home, and... Indiana threw everything at him, and it, and it and it worked. That's why that's why Indiana won. It worked to beat Purdue, but it didn't work to stop Zach. I think he had 26 and 18 in that game. Yeah, and people walked away like, oh well, you know, uh, well he wasn't that great. And then you look at the numbers. It's like, oh my goodness, we're at the point now where 26 and 18 isn't a big deal. That's how good he's been, and how hard he's been to stop. Uh, Michigan State played in single up uh, in in East Lansing, and I think they gave up thirty five or something like that. Then they decided to double him uh, in West Lafayette, and I think he scored thirty three. It's it, 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 he, he has not allowed you any comfort. And if if the rest of the players and I, when you said before that they weren't consistent, I think they've been reasonably consistent as players, but no one has been. At all consistent as a shooter, uh, Fletcher has really struggled with that. He's had he's not had a great night in a while. He's not had many good nights in the last six weeks or so. Uh, Braden doesn't get as many looks because now they're that. That's one of the things. It's easier to close out on him because he's not big, um, and so they make sure that they do. And and they and they're not concerned at all right now about Fletcher taking shots. They they don't worry about. Ethan Morton taking shots and because they know that he's a teeny bit reluctant to do it, and they count on that a little bit, and they're going to pay once in a while because Ethan's making shots from now, but he's never going to make five because he's never going to take enough to make five. And, until that happens, then that this tactic is the way to go, and we'll see whether or not it, it eventually happens. I think the move to Brandon Newman for that reason it was a really smart move by Matt, and you saw what it did early against Illinois, especially. It, it helped fuel that 20-some point lead. They, they eventually, you know, it started to become wise to not shoot threes because you're up 25 or whatever, and so they didn't do it as much. They got a little reluctant, and Illinois made their run, and they wound up in a game again. I think they've got to be more, they, they've got to be patient, but they still have to be aggressive. If you're up 24, go ahead and take 20 seconds off the shot clock. But if it's a three-point shot that they're giving you, you still have to take it with the same eagerness.
0: Mike DeCorsi is our guest. He is with Sporting News. He's on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Mike Back to the Sporting News awards that have been named within the last 24 hours, this one within the last 20 minutes or so. Rodney Terry of Texas is the Men's College Basketball Coach of the Year. Of course, he did not begin the season as the expected head coach at Texas. We know about what happened with Chris Beard being relieved of his duties. How much of the situation that rodney terry walked into influenced that award to him versus the actual season in other words i don't follow intimately texas basketball were they expected to have a 23 and 8 type year or was it not only the situation that he walked into but also maximizing his roster towards the award
4: yeah i think it i think it comes from the fact that he walked into a team that had great capabilities and then was it was put in this circumstance, which is a pretty rare circumstance obviously, and let's hope it you know let, let's hope it never happens again anywhere uh, but this circumstance was really hard to manage because it was it, it was an overnight thing it wasn't one of those deals where uh, a coach does something uh out of the boundaries of the NCAA rulebook say and so you're everybody's sort of looking around and everybody kind of knows something's gonna happen soon uh, but this wasn't like that this was. Arrested on a, uh, on a, on the in the morning, uh, suspended as soon as UT finds out about it and and, and learns the details. And oh, by the way, you got to play that night. And that's that was very difficult. And then playing in the most difficult conference in college basketball history—not the best. Uh, this is not you know James Worthy and Michael Jordan and Ralph Sampson and uh, and Derek Wittenberg in the ACC in '83 or anything like that we don't have that anymore because of players going through college quickly but this but there there has never been a league that didn't have a bad team in in college basketball history and this one did not have any and so you had to be good every night to not lose and texas of course wasn't good every night uh, no one in that league was or they or someone had been undefeated but they were good often enough to finish a strong second they were one bad result, uh, maybe the maybe the loss at Texas Tech away from tying for the championship. They're on p- pace to get a number two seed, which would be one of their best seeds, probably their best seed I think since two thousand and six. Uh, that they that if they if they hold that, so it's quite a season under really difficult circumstances for the players to, to deal with and for the coaches to keep the players' attention and, and, and respect.
0: And this is going to kind of put you on the spot, Mike. I apologize. But is he – I'm trying to think of other guys. I think it was – is it Brian LrB Was that his name that was at Michigan for a while there? Or, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of is he the first coach in an interim-type situation? And I'm looking at the list here of the Sporting News National Coach of the Year winners – Is he the first under that type of situation to walk into an uncertainty in terms of his long term future and get that award? You
4: know, actually, as I was looking at it, uh, Jim Cruz of St. Louis, I think it was 2012, 13. Yeah, 2013, yeah. Yeah, what happened that year was Rick Majeris was coaching. He was the active coach. And then early fall, he became very ill. And very soon after that passed away. And so Jim took over that year and led them, I think, to around 26 wins, something like that. And so, I mean, obviously a devastating situation for for the players to lose to lose their coach, to, to have him pass away. And and Jim did a great job. You know, obviously people in Indiana know who Jim is, coached at Evansville, played for IU, and he did a wonderful job that year. And it and took them to a very successful season in the Atlantic ten.
2: Mike DeCoursey's with us here, of course, Big Ten Network, sporting news, getting back to the local scene here, Mike. If you examine Purdue and what they need to do here the rest of this week to get a number one seed, what do you think they need? Do they need two? Do they need all three Big Ten wins and winning a Big Ten title? And kinda off that, how much does Sunday from a contingency standpoint matter? When the NCAA Tournament Committee puts a bracket together and you've got that Big Ten Championship game butting right up to Selection Sunday?
4: Yeah, it basically doesn't matter other than you win the championship or lose the championship. But uh, Unless you are, let's say, Michigan, which begins the week with the ability to win this tournament and probably the necessity. Uh, and so I, I think that for them it matters. And the committee would have to be uh, ready to either put Michigan in or not. If indeed they wouldn't consider Michigan a, a a at-large team by getting to Sunday, and we can't say for sure they wouldn't. But if they if they were in the position still believing that Michigan was not an at-large team, then they would need to win that game, and then at that point, the committee would have to have an alternate bracket ready. Uh, if, if indeed they 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 determined among themselves that that Michigan would be an at-large team. Regardless, and then they might have to make some alterations to who would be in the first four or something like that. It's not as complicated as completely redoing the bracket. So that's that's what they're looking at relative to Purdue. I, what what re, honestly, what Purdue needs more than their own victories, and I think they would need to at least play to Saturday, play through Saturday to be a one seed. But what they need even more is for UCLA to lose. Mm-hmm. And the for, for, from the boiler standpoint, the sooner the better. Whether that would be Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, Thursday's best, Friday's better. Uh, you know, Sunday, Saturday would help, but then would still leave that up, to, you know, uh, up in some doubt. So, I, I think that, to me, the resume that Purdue has now is still better. You'll look on my bracket and you'll see UCLA there. Why are they there if you think Purdue's resume is better? The simple answer is. Part of part of my job, really, most of the job of what I do for Fox is trying to think like the committee thinks, and it's not always easy. It's hard to to, to know for sure because the committee made, made members change from year to year. But the one thing that I that I settled on was they're going to want a number one seed to come in flying. That's what they want. They want them to look really good coming in, and that hasn't been Purdue over the last two, three weeks. It has been UCLA. Has UCLA been aided by the fact that very few of the teams that they're playing are going to be playing in March? Absolutely. But when they were faced with two teams that had the opportunity, uh, one for certain in Arizona, that's going to be a two or three seed, and one that's trying to fight their way in, and obviously desperate as a result in Arizona State, and they blew them both off the floor. So I think that really changed my view of what the committee would think.
2: Boy, I'm looking at uh, what you've got for Indiana mapped out right now in your latest on Fox Sports. I might faint at some of these storylines that, that would be here for Indiana. How about this? Indiana the four, Rick Pitino's the 13 in the first round, Kentucky would sit there as the five, a potential second round, and Kelvin Sampson in the Sweet 16. Oh boy. Mike, you literally checked all the the entire bingo card is filled <laughs> with that right there.
4: And, you know, and this is, this you know, people think that they sit there and do that like I got to do this every day, and I've got two other jobs, so I'm not sitting there thinking, "Gee, wouldn't it be cool?" You know, I don't have the time. Believe me, I barely have time to eat. So I would love it, it though. It, 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 I mean, I'm just saying that, like people who think that they, that they really sit there in in uh, the committee room and try to make those matchups up. At the end of the day, there's there's the, uh, a lot of crossover between teams and history and all that, and. It's, it's going to happen naturally. I, I promise you, at no point did I ever think, oh, that would be really good to put Iona in with, uh, with, with Indiana because people would get excited about that. Or, or it, it, All that matters to me is, can Indiana and Kentucky play because they haven't played before, they're not in the same league, and I just need to do that so I can move on and get the next line done, believe me. Uh,
2: assuming Sunday for the Big Ten Championship, like you said, doesn't matter that much from a seeding standpoint, is the three-line the highest Indiana can get if the seeds hold and they beat Maryland and beat Northwestern to get to the Big Ten title?
4: Yeah, I, I, I think the two-line is pretty far out of reach for them with the way they closed. And not not because of how they closed, but because of where that left their resume. Uh, I I think, and even three, when I look at that K-State, Marquette, UConn, Gonzaga. Gonzaga lock three now because they blew out St. Mary's last night. So the other three positions, uh, the one advantage IU might have is that UConn and Marquette are playing in the same conference, and therefore one is only one of them can survive if one of them survives through Saturday night. Uh, So that's an advantage. But if Let's just say Xavier came in and took over those two teams and beat them both. I mean, they could take the three instead of IU. So I think that the most likely scenario is IU finishing as a fourth. But in order to get that, uh, they need to they need to take care of their business this week in in Chicago.
0: Now, Mike, now that we have got you know the mid majors and the conference tournaments, last night we saw Gonzaga all over saint mary's but saint mary's is in uh were there any quote-unquote bid stealers if you were a team that's on the bubble what conference tournaments if any because i didn't do like a once over on all of them were there any that were bad news for you because a team that otherwise would not have gotten into the tournament won their conference tournament thus carrying somebody else in
4: to date no uh, I think the one that's out there that's that all the bubble teams will be monitoring is Florida Atlantic in the Conference USA tournament. Everybody's going to be polling for them. That's a bubble team if they go through and take Conference USA. Because uh, that, that's the one team that probably gets an at-large. College of Charleston, I would have been disappointed had they lost last night and not gotten in because they had 30-plus wins. Uh, I don't th- I don't think the committee values that enough. Uh, they, they look at it. Well, it's not a great league. And what are the numbers? And I, and my response to that is, do you know how many 30 win teams go out? You know, don't make your tournament, not many. And you know what happens when you get a 30 win team in your tournament? Surprisingly, they win more games. If you win 30 and lose three or lose or lose four in this circumstance, if they had not gotten the automatic bid, they're really good. And they're likely to win because they know how to win. And so I would have been disappointed, but I, so I was. I was pulling for Charleston last night to get that bid because I, I didn't want that, to see that happen to them. Uh, Florida Atlantic is another team like that. Uh, the other concern might be the uh, Mountain West Conference. I, I, I think that Nevada uh, and and to a greater extent Utah State are not NCAA tournament teams. I am fairly rare among that. I may eventually have to change my mind depending on what they do in their tournaments this week but we we can't let the we can't let the analytics dictate this if you people who were arguing with me on twitter yesterday about utah state are like well yeah but they're 22 in the net and like 22 in ken palm or whatever and i'm like yeah who they beat who did they beat at all anybody come on give me one team and they played the, the top three teams in their league they played them all twice it's a double round robin league they went two and four against the other top teams in their league they lost 66% of their toughest games. Come on. That's not a tournament team. Why? Because some computer spits out a formula that says they're 22nd in the country. Sometimes there are outliers in every analytic. And in this case, they're an outlier in most of the analytics. They are not a tournament team as we sit here today. If they go out and win the Mountain West tournament, good for them. It'll probably cost the bubble team a a, a, a spot, uh, but they, they, they just don't belong. And I, I am baffled by the willingness of some basketball fans to turn the entire thing over to a computer formula that they don't even know what goes into it. They don't know what the numbers are. They have a general idea but they don't know. And so they're going to just say, "Well, we trust you. We trust your we trust your 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 calculations to tell us everything." Come on. If if the tr- if the if the calculations were always right, you the three of us could go Uh, to Vegas and sit in the sports book and bet the analytics and never lose or almost never lose or always win at least you know and always have a winning day and we'd never have to work again. But it doesn't work like that.
2: A man
0: with many jobs. I'd love to never have to work. A
2: man working a whole lot, especially this time of year. (laughs) He is Mike DiCorsi. Mike, great stuff. Thanks for hopping on during what is a very busy week for you. Thanks, fellas. ESPN draft analyst Matt Miller going to join us here in a couple of minutes. We'll we'll push the pop quiz to close out
0: today's show. I believe I see Scotty rolling his eyes over there. Scotty
2: decked out in Colts gear. I believe Matt Miller, a fan of Anthony Richardson to the Colts. We'll chat about that with him. And again, I am curious a little bit about Hendon Hooker. I feel like he's a forgotten man, a couple knocks on age and ACL. So we'll uh, touch on that with Matt Miller here coming up in just a second.
0: It is interesting that you, it, you wonder where. I, I guess the better question, Kevin, would be where would Hendon Hooker be had he not gotten hurt. You know how much is how much of that is detriment of, of age, and how much of it is health? Matt Miller joins us now again, the great draft analyst at ESPN.
2: Um, just spent a week in Indianapolis. We'll chat all about that with him right now, and, and let's do start there, Matt. I know it's not the quarterback on the top of everyone's everyone's mind. We'll get to that one. But Hendon Hooker, to me, is such an interesting case study in the age, the ACL, the offense he came from in college. How do you how do you view Hendon Hooker within this quarterback draft class?
1: Yeah, guys, he would be a first-round pick were it not for the ACL injury. Like, even understanding that he just turned 25 years old, I think, he, I mean, gosh, the way he's played over the last two years, I don't think his has received as much attention as it should have. I, we got kind of got caught up in that. You know, the first year was, all right, this is the real deal. You know, after he transferred in from Virginia Tech, I, I think to some degree the scheme has had people discount what he was able to do. But, I mean, it, no matter how good your scheme is, he threw five interceptions and 58 touchdowns the last two years. Like, I don't care how good your scheme is. I don't even know if I care how good your level of competition is when your touchdown to interceptions fifty eight to five. I mean that's crazy. And then obviously you know he brings an element to the ground game as well. He's a big quarterback. He's smart. He's he's had you know he had success at Virginia Tech. and didn't turn the ball over there either. I think that's something that people have to go back and look at too. So he would be in that first round group for me. Probably not up there with the you know the big four that are going to go super early. Just because he is older, that would be the only thing that would knock him down. But man, if we were If you took away the knee injury, 18 to the Detroit Lions, 19 to Tampa, 20 to Seattle, I feel like he would probably be in that range right there. 29 to the Saints would probably be his floor.
0: Matt, I'm going to ask a question that I've asked to a couple of people this week, but but I value your input on this. Are we looking at an NFL draft this year with four names at the quarterback position that are up there towards the top because, A, they are four dynamic talents that are worthy of being towards the top in any given year, or B, because it's a year where there are a plethora of teams needing quarterback and a void elsewhere around, and so by default, they have become the cream of the crop?
1: I think it's a little of both. That's a really good question. I I like the way you set that up. I, I do think, to some degree, it is like Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud are good. They've been good for two years. We we know who they are, right? We've been watching them a long time. We know who they are. I think those are the two where they would be up there in any given draft class. They both would have been the number one quarterback last year. I think if you go back and are able to somehow put them in the 2021 draft, they're not Trevor Lawrence, but they're probably ahead of Zach Wilson. For me, they would have been. You know, they're they're ahead of Trey Lance certainly. They're ahead of Mac Jones. I actually really liked Justin Fields. I don't know that I would be able to jump them over Justin Fields, but um, I, I think they're good. Anthony Richardson and Will Levis are, are very interesting prospects, and they're players that I do believe are worthy of investing a pick and time and development in. But those are the guys where I worry, are we are we focusing on the positives and ignoring the negatives, which, you know, like, that is a huge part of player evaluation is what can they do versus what can't they do. But if the, if, if we see four quarterbacks in the top five, to me that will be artificial inflation of, of a player's stock because of the position he plays.
2: Okay. I, just a couple of years ago, one, two, three, those, those three quarterbacks went.
1: And it hasn't worked out very well. No, you know? like, no, no, no. That, Cer- certainly not the guy the going number
0: two in Zach Wilson. Right. Matt, you touched on something here on Twitter that I want you to elaborate on for our listeners. Again, Matt Miller is our guest on the Payless Lookers Hotline at NFL Draft Scout on Twitter. Uh, I also think this is what you tweeted: the strong showing at the combine by the four quarterback weakens the value of the number one overall pick. Houston and Indianapolis probably not feeling as much pressure this week as they were to jump up the board. Um, in in. And I don't disagree with that. I think Chris Ballard looks at it and, and probably covets what he would maybe have to give up to move up. They may still do that. We'll see. But do you believe that Indianapolis is less aggressive at four? And if they have to select the fourth quarterback off the board or third, you believe it would be which one?
1: Uh, I think so. I don't think Indy has to be as aggressive. I'll say that. I don't think there's the pressure to get to number one today like there was a week ago. I really don't. I, I just. It, why you're like, what, who are you jumping? So like, let's say that, let's say you love Bryce Young. You believe he's the guy. Is he that much better than CJ Stroud to where you feel like you have to give up future first round picks. To me, the difference between Bryce Young and CJ Stroud is not future first round picks, especially on a roster that, that needs a left tackle. That needs another wide receiver that needs a pass rusher. Like they are, the Colts are not one quarterback away. So to me, it's not worth the future picks, right? So if they stay at four, so much hinges on what happens at one. But if you stay at four, you have, I think you have a realistic shot at Will Levis and Anthony Richardson. Now for Indy, I think Will Levis is more intriguing because he could play right away. And I think you have an owner that is very impatient and wants to win right now. So I don't think you're in a spot where you can say, all right, let's bring in Jacoby Brissett and draft Anthony Richardson. And we've got now, uh, you know, a five-year plan. I, I think it's more, Hey, we got to win. We got to win quickly. So, if, if you're staying at four, assuming somebody trades to one for Bryce Young, assuming that the Texans would take CJ Stroud at two, you're looking at Will Levis at four.
2: Okay, Matt Miller's with us, ESPN draft analyst at NFL Draft Scout on Twitter. Um, Matt, feel free to you know whatever rip this, but when you look at the three quarterbacks, and let's put Levis to the side just for the exercise. If you're going to go play a game tomorrow would Bryce Young make the most sense? If you were going to bet on the safest pick for the next decade, would C.J. Stroud make the most sense? And then lastly, if you're betting on the most potential, is that Anthony Richardson? It's like kind of boiling down to those three guys. Is that how you view those three? Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, Anthony Richardson?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think Bryce Young is... I love Bryce Young, and I, I like I don't ever want to sound like I'm discounting him. He's my top quarterback. He's my number two overall player. Like I love Bryce Young, but he he is small, you know. And how long can he hold up? I, I think for more Bryce Young and Anthony Richardson, the situation matters more. I think C.J. Stroud is going to be just fine wherever he lands because he's you know he's big. He's got a. A good, not great arm, but it's it's good. He's got great accuracy. He has a really good understanding of, you know, just how to throw a catchable football and get the most out of his weapons. But I do think you put them in the right silos of. If I needed to go out and win tomorrow, I would, I would take Bryce Young. He carried a bad Alabama team this year. I think people overlook that of they just hear Alabama and think, oh, my God, he was loaded. There There's not another Alabama player other than Jameer Gibbs, a running back, who will be selected in the top – 100 picks on offense like it was just not a good offense this year he really carried them they would have been like six and six without him probably I mean so I don't want to discount Bryce Young just because he came in at 510 and just because we know he's going to struggle to to play around 200 pounds he's he's really really good but to me the difference between he and CJ Stroud is not that big
0: Matt this year's draft in terms of overall talent is richest at what position
1: Oh, wow. Corner, probably. Uh, I think cornerback is really, really deep. We're going to see a lot of five, maybe, corners in the first round. And tight end is crazy deep, too. We might not see the run on those guys early, but I think there are like six or seven starting caliber tight ends in this class. Uh, those would be the two where I feel really good about it. Offensive tackles, pretty good, not great. Quarterback is, I like five of them. After that, there's a pretty big drop-off. But if I, you know, if I would say there's a what's the strength? I would say corner, tight end, and defensive end are your big groups in this draft that are that are super talented. Not just at the top, but really all the way through.
0: When you say five at quarterback, by the way, we're talking about the four that you know, Levis, Richardson, Young, and Stroud, and then I'm assuming Hooker's the fifth.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um,
0: yeah. The, the position that is the driest this year, the position that you do not want to have on your roster a need for going into this draft
1: is what? Defensive tackle. I mean, Jalen Carter is a top-five talent. We're going to see what happens with his you know, off-field situation. It's going to definitely raise a lot of questions, and, and I don't have those answers yet. We have about 50 days to figure those out. Um, but I, I think after that, you get into Kalijah Cansey from Pitt, who is undersized. You know, at six foot one, two hundred and eighty pounds. Uh, you get into Brian Brice from uh, Clemson, who you know last two years have really been a wash for him because of you know a torn ACL. His sister passed away, and then he had a kidney infection that's just really made you know his off-field situation almost you know impossible the last few years. So after after Jalen Carter, there's a pretty big drop-off.
2: Again, it's Matt Miller from ESPN. You've heard him on with us before. Outstanding draft coverage at NFL Draft Scout on Twitter. Matt, I want to ask you about a couple of local guys. Michael Mayer, the Notre Dame product, You know, probably didn't light the combine on fire, but just strikes me as just a damn good football player. And then not sure how much you've dove into Aiden O'Connell from Purdue. Yeah, not the most fleet of foot, but certainly um, had some nice success in his collegiate days at Purdue. Uh, any thoughts on Mayer and or Aiden O'Connell?
1: Mayor's still my top tight end. Like you said, no, the combine wasn't great. No one should have expected it to be great. That's not his game, right? I mean, he's he's a 250 pound inline tight end. He's not going to blow up the combine. But I'll say this: he didn't drop a single ball in his workout and looked great in you know, run blocking drills. Like that's who he is. If you want a fast tight end, draft Dalton Kincaid. If you want somebody that you never know when he's on the field what he's going to be, like you don't. Like there are some tight ends. You put them out there, it's like, oh, okay, they're throwing the ball because he's on the field. You know, like Mike Gusecki. Michael Mayer is the type of dude, you could put him out there and the defense has no idea what you're doing because he's so versatile. So I'm still a big fan of his. I still think he should be a first-round pick. Uh, Aiden O'Connell, you're right. He's not going to blow you away with his arm strength. He's not going to blow you away with his foot speed. But he's incredibly accurate. I mean, I I love his story. You know, to go from a walk-on to becoming – so prolific as a pastor in college and, and, you know, to really add a program that I think it's fair to say was struggling when he got there. He's played really well. Uh, he and Charlie Jones, one of my favorite duos this past year, what they were able to do. So I think Aiden has a shot to be a top hundred draft pick. He's got a shot to work his way into, you know, would it, would it shock me if in two years he's a starter? Absolutely not. Because he's just so accurate. He's so smart. He plays with such great touch there's always going to be a need for a player like that when you know when maybe some of the athletic guys that we're hoping develop don't. I, I we see teams fall back to the Aiden O'Connell's all the time.
2: Matt, we'll end with this. Um, Jake, my co-host and myself, we are obsessed with the city of Indianapolis. Uh, we think every event, frankly, should be held here uh, for the rest of time. So you're coming on Indianapolis radio, and now I'm like, please talk nice about our city. Luckily, you did that <laughs> yourself on Twitter just a few days ago. Why do you feel like there's just this overwhelming consensus on an annual basis, whether it's GMs, coaches, or media members, that they just laud Indianapolis for their ability to host the Combine?
1: Well, I mean, India is a convention town. You know, I mean, you guys have the amazing, you know, ICC, which is. Phenomenal! It's huge. Uh, I've been lost in there multiple times. But I also think what what the NFL needs to remember, and I hope they ask some of us who actually do this for a living, is Indianapolis is the only city in America, maybe outside of New York, in my opinion at least, that you can you can walk everywhere. It is a truly walkable city, and you have the hotels for the for meetings and dinners, and you have. You know, the hotels and, and the restaurants and everything is, like, where you need it right there. But also, I don't want to go to L.A. and spend my week in a car. Like, I, I I, really don't. I've been to L.A. for events before, and I spend, like, three hours a day in a car. Who has time for that with all the stuff we have to do at the Combine? Do you want players, you know, sitting in a car? I, I mean, maybe they can have them stay right at SoFi, but they're not going to put the – eight thousand media members that that are now at the combine there as well. So to me Indy is perfect for the Combine. You know, it's it's why you guys do such a great job with, you know, Big Ten championships as well is you can put a lot of people in a very small area and you never feel cramped. And also Like those of us who work in and around the NFL, we are creatures of habit. I go to the same restaurants, the same nights every year in Indianapolis. And I'm great with that. I like that. I don't have to think like, oh man, I don't know my way around here. What are we going to do for dinner tonight? Where can I go to bump into the scouts and agents so that I can do my job? We would have to completely start over. So not only is Indy great at hosting the Combine, but for selfish reasons, I'm I know my way around Indy and I really, really, really don't want to have to learn another place.
0: <laughs> Hell yeah.
2: Sandy Novation Matt Miller is getting right now from LA, ourselves nice, and yeah. certainly our listening audience. Favorite non Saint Elmo restaurant, Matt?
1: Prime. Prime is actually like my my night two in Indy every year. I go to Prime. It's I love it. Uh, Elmo's is, you know, you got to go, right? You got to get the shrimp cocktail. You got to do it. I think Prime does; like, they do a great job, start to finish. It's it's fantastic. You can't go wrong, though. Um, you really can't. I think this year I did. I did. I don't know. I don't want to give up free advertising on your show. I did a <laughs> lot of the steak places. None of them disappointed. I'll tell you that.
2: I love it, Matt. Thanks, man. Great stuff. I know it's been a busy uh, decompressing from the combine a little bit. So appreciate you making time for us.
1: Absolutely, guys. Thank you.